Hello and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr, where we talk about the art and culture of running an independent record label. And today I'm interviewing a record label, something we set out to do, I believe, six years ago, and we're still doing it now. And it's still my favorite thing to do. And this is one of my favorite interviews because it's one of my favorite record labels. It's a record label originally called, and we get into all this, so kind of clarify because it is a little confusing, but originally called Little Symphony Records. And now they went through a rebrand just recently called Enjou, spelled E-N-J-O-U. And we talk all about that. And they're an incredible label that focuses on uh, minimalist music, experimental music, neoclassical. Again, we get into all of that. Nobody likes labels. Nobody likes genre, <laughs> you know, defining a genre. It's harder and harder to do these days. Uh, but very, very beautiful, peaceful music. And I've been connecting with David, who I have on the show now, over the past couple of months. And we've been just, I've been listening to his music and, and the stuff from their label. And I'm a huge fan. And there's a lot that you're going to learn when it comes to streaming, playlisting in that world in today's episode. So I think you're going to love it. It's a big one. And make sure you have a, a pen and paper to take some notes down. A big shout out to our friends at Hellbender Vinyl. If you're thinking about pressing vinyl, if you've maybe never done it before and you want to dabble with it, then um, check out hellbendervinyl.com. They are the newest and only pressing plant in Pittsburgh. And, uh, and they're brand new on the scene and they're part of our record label community. So a big shout out to them, hellbendervinyl.com. Somebody realized on, somebody mentioned this on Twitter this uh, a couple of weeks ago. I thought it was kind of funny, but it, somebody realized that like there are some songs and some artists out there that are put on people's sleep playlists that will get uh, repeated every single night you know what I mean? Like I've had, I've had songs on my friend's baby's playlist. And I'm like, oh, that's great. That's seven days a week. I'm going to get played on repeat. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, piano, soft piano music, like the stuff you guys do, or it's uh, just Taylor Swift stuff, or uh, in our case with my family, it's Raffi, which is a little Canadian reference there for our, our fans. Um, but tell me a little bit about like um, getting plays around the clock. That's kind of a nice like side benefit of of streaming and and how that pays per play works. I've never I hadn't really thought about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's um, it's been really interesting, and I guess I'll I'll start by saying the whole world of kind of passive streaming is the wild west. Okay. Um, and I'll give you a few examples, yeah. but it's like, it's hugely competitive, um, cutthroat, like people do some really dirty stuff. Uh, in fact, yesterday, um, we became aware of the fact that our biggest playlisting account, because we, we have a few uh, accounts that we playlist mm -hmm. from, had been hacked and um, they changed the email, changed the password, and then replaced all of the music on our playlists with their own music. Wow. Um, we we were able to get the playlist back. Uh, yeah. Thankfully, Spotify was, um, they responded super quickly, which was a huge surprise because nice. usually it takes a few days. Yeah. But, um, anyways, yeah, so it's, it's a pretty crazy world. Um, and... Yeah, like something that we've been really trying to do, uh, both on the Anjou front as well as the Little Symphony front, is um, you know do it in a way that's legitimate. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and you know we've drawn some lines in the sand for ourselves in terms of you know what we are and aren't willing to do. 
Um, as you mentioned, you know, like uh, song length can really come into play. Um, fortunately, Spotify in 2024 is going to be rolling out some new rules around that, which I think is great. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are you familiar with those new rules? Yeah, because there are there have been people gaming the system. I think especially on these passive listening playlists where yeah. fans aren't really being. Uh, um, they're not being like uh, critical of w what's happening. They're just putting it on and not noticing if if a thirty second song or thirty two second song is being repeated. Yeah, exactly. And and I think it's definitely evidence of a a broken system. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. And you know, this is coming from someone who kind of you know can benefit from yeah. that broken system. Um. But yeah, I mean, whether a track is thirty seconds or five minutes, I mean, that shouldn't a role in how much people get paid okay um yeah. but uh yeah so um i kind of forget what the original question was but, no no uh, i didn't have a question i wanted i really want to dive into this passive streaming because it's yeah. very interesting but it also and we've talked about this on the show before that it also is um there's a a real fine line with respecting the artists who make this music um and does an artist care if their music is loved and appreciated, but the um, fan doesn't even know who the artist is? Um, does that, I mean, it's a byproduct of these passive ways that people consume music. You're working directly with with artists. You work with real artists. It's not like you are using a plugin to create this music. And, and so um, tell me about the mindset of these fans who know, uh, sorry, the mindset of these artists who know that they're not a household name yet they're getting millions of streams yeah um it's definitely something we you know it's kind of a, a mindset that we we all battle with mm -hmm. every day um and you know one of the things that i try to tell artists is um you know this is just a piece of the puzzle that's right yeah um and and so i always you know kind of break it down into uh, you know, three potential baskets that artists can focus their time on when it comes to making music. So, you know, you have the music that you love and enjoy, and like that is your passion. Mm -hmm. um, you have the music that you make because it makes you money and it funds the stuff in that first basket. Um, and then the uh, the third basket is kind of this niche basket of. Um, you know, this is where you might create music to connect with a particular niche uh, yeah. audience. Yeah. Um, and sometimes, if you're insanely lucky, you can check all three of those boxes yeah. with a project. But more often than not, it's uh, just that, uh, or it's just one of them. You kind of just get to pick one. Um, and so we try to be real with our artists and say, you know, like when it comes to, in particular, the kind of peaceful piano style music, um, you know, don't expect to earn a ton of long-term fans just from that. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, it's with with our rebrand from Little Symphony Records to Anjou. One of our goals is to be able to facilitate um, more long-term growth for these artists by focusing not just on that passive music, but uh, some really interesting projects, which I'd love to tell you about. Um, uh, that you know can really connect with with the listeners. Sure, yeah, well, that's interesting, and and I do want to talk about the rebrand, and I want to talk about the label and the history of the label. 
uh, on this topic though of this of streaming and what it can do and how it can like disturb or impact or drive creativity. That's to me what I find so fascinating because um, there's got I don't know who is who is kind of shepherding these artists because it can be either very discouraging that you can't do stuff outside of the norm and and still make money, uh, or it can actually drive you subconsciously or consciously to say, you know what, I think I'm going to do a piano album uh, or I'm going to do a song, you know, or you as a, a label owner, you hear something and you're like, just so you know, that's going to fit on a lot of playlists or just so you know, that's not going to fit on any playlists. Um, so how do you make sure it it does drive creativity and it doesn't drive creativity? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, the answer to that definitely has evolved over time for us. Um, in the beginning days when we started the label about three years ago, um, you know, our, our goal at the time was, okay, let's, let's get enough music for our big playlists that we've created uh, so that this can become viable. Mm-hmm. Um, and since then we've, we've done that. And so there's less urgency on our end to, um, you know, get more peaceful piano music for sleep kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, so that, Definitely has given us the the time to be able to take a step back and say, okay, well, you know, maybe we can start focusing on more of these projects that are a little bit more creative, uh, you know, uh, creatively driven. adventurous and um, yeah. yeah, and you know, pushing boundaries. And so we're just upfront with artists when they bring a project to us. I mean, first and foremost, the first uh, thing I'm looking for is, uh, you know, is this is this you know a high quality project, and mm-hmm. is it um, is it going to speak to listeners in in some way? Um, and you know if it, if it satisfies that, and and we want to move forward with the project, then we'll kind of just put the ball back in the artist court and say um, you know as far as our end goes on like the playlisting side, um, because that is a, a big part of our strategy is our own playlists that we've uh, okay um, that we've created and uh, kind of creating that ecosystem yeah um, we'll give them an idea of what you know what level of playlisting we're gonna be able to offer for that uh, project mm-hmm. um, and more often than not um, even if the answer is like listen this isn't gonna go on our big reading playlist um, artists are still like you know what like that I I don't care like I want to get this project out yeah yeah into the world and we've uh, fostered just really beautiful relationships with our artists and we have a really incredible community of supportive artists who are always supporting each other um, and so you know, while that might uh, be a little bit discouraging it, it doesn't seem to stop artists from creating the music that they really want to create well I love what you kind of alluded to and, and I've seen this in a lot of labels I think it's a it's something that labels should aspire to, and that is having a catalog that funds and enables the future of the of the record label. And and yeah. I think that's um, there's no shame in that. And that's ultimately, I think that's the dream. And that's really how a lot of the labels that we look up to are operating. I mean, even the the neoclassical labels and the the, the biggest labels out there that are doing super crazy stuff you know, unaccessible music, they're doing it on the backs of like really accessible music. Yeah. Um, so there's no, we, we shouldn't forget that. And it is, yeah. it is kind of a, 
I think it's a healthy business model. And it's like you had mentioned about the the different pieces of the puzzle. Um, I would imagine just going back to this kind of passive listening thing. Um, I don't know in this genre, maybe I'm stereotyping the people who make this kind of music, but I find something appealing about being in the background and being an introvert and not feeling pressured to tour and just getting to make my music. Um, and I don't, you know, if it's hotel lobbies and spas and, and yoga studios playing my music, I feel it's like, thank you. I can just do my own thing. I like that as an artist. <laughs> there must be some of your artists that kind of appreciate that anonymity a little yep. bit. Definitely. Yeah. There's, uh, I mean, a few of our artists, they, you know, they, like to remain a little bit anonymous, not so much uh, in terms of you know the name that they put on the music, but you know they don't they don't like running social media uh, accounts and and doing right, all that stuff. Course. And um, for them, it's you know the joy comes from creating the music. And I would put myself in that basket as well. Um, like I I create a lot of music, and I'm so silent about it, honestly, that pretty much. I'd say all my friends don't even know that uh, that I'm you know spending my time making all this music, um, and that's kind of there's the way a purity like it, to know? that, it's, eh? It's, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I I totally agree. Um, I I love how I've talked about this on the show. Um, I love how streaming has created. We'll move on from streaming. I apologize. There's more to talk about. We'll move on. Um, it's all I love, good. I love talking <laughs> okay, about streaming. Okay, good, good. Well, I have more questions. Um, I do like how streaming has created opportunities for music fans to spend time with genres that they previously uh, wouldn't have had access to. I, I think it's it's what makes classical, neoclassical, ambient interesting to mainstream listeners because there's no barrier to check it out. There's no cost to check it out. 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it would have been, and I mean, I was the I was a diehard music fan my whole life. So if I wanted to explore an interesting type of music, and 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 back then a lot of this type of music was just soundtracks, really. But like, if I wanted to discover this music, I'd have to go and pick one CD and hope that I liked all of the songs on it, or maybe get lucky and find a compilation CD. Uh, you know, but that was still a twenty dollar risk. Or I guess maybe satellite radio, sort of. So there is kind of something cool about um, what we're given today and and how it creates this new distribution opportunity, uh, not just for you and for labels and for artists, but for music fans. Personally, for me, I've gotten into an enormous amount of new genres because of that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... I think there's, uh, you know, a lot to unpack there. And for me <laughs> as a listener, I mean, it's it's definitely been uh, a double-edged sword. Um, I think back to the way that I used to consume music as a kid, on you know, with my with my CD Walkman, and there there was a special yeah. relationship that I had with those you know first albums that I bought. You know, I think back to my the first album I bought. Uh, Blink 182's "Take Off Your Pants and Jacket" and yeah, yeah, uh, listened to that basically until uh, it was too scratched up to listen <laughs> to. Um, but that said, I mean, we are now in an era where listening to music 
uh, is just so much more accessible to mm-hmm. uh, you know I would say almost everyone. Um, and I think that's that's a beautiful thing. And like you said, you know, the accessibility of more genres. Um, and you know, honestly, I didn't listen to classical music or neoclassical music until three months before we started uh, Little Symphony Records, which wow. uh, you know has uh, largely focused on neoclassical music. Um, and uh, yeah, so my my mind was blown when my partner sent me this playlist. It was uh, Spotify's Not Quite Classical playlist. Yeah. Um, it's like a mix of neoclassical, electronic music. And my mind was just blown. And I was like, okay, I, mm. I, know, that, I know that this is what I want to do. I, like, I don't know how I'm going to make this work, but like, this is the world that I want to live in. And since then, I've been just absolutely obsessed with neoclassical music. Um, and it's you know, become my life. That's amazing. Well, it's so interesting how it's just given, I think as a whole, it's given a lot more um, uh, exposure to instrumental music as a whole, not just yeah. neoclassical. But I think we yeah. all, first of all, neoclassical, we've put things in a box yeah. and we've, we put classical in a box. And then when you hear classical music or neoclassical music or ambient music that's rhythmic, melodic, um, something you can almost sing along to that's instrumental, that was kind of a my own awakening similar to yours is it's like wow i don't really need vocals to in, to tap my foot and to almost hum along yeah yeah and you 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 said a couple words earlier that um are words that we use uh, like accessible mm. music and that's been um that's been the big thing for us is is uh you know really wanting to support instrumental slash neoclassical music that is uh, you know, passionate but mm. accessible. Yes, which yeah. uh, you know, modern classical music, you know, created created in the last fifty years, like isn't exactly accessible. Yeah, um, uh, not all of it, of course. But um, and so I've I've really loved the music that's been coming out of Iceland and sure uh, and Europe. You know, Olaf Arnolds and Niels yeah. Fromm, and yeah. it's just so accessible. And you know, I I think anyone could find something. That they love about that kind of music. I agree, and they are, and it's. It, the, I think it's growing. I'd be curious to see a chart, but I think it's mm-hmm. growing. Yeah, let's take a quick break. I got to reset my internet, and um, it's a good time to do that. So, <laughs> just give me okay. one second. Hey, Scott here. Um, I'll get you back to the episode in just a second, but I wanted to let you know, if you're listening to this and going, you know what? I've been thinking about starting my own record label. I think now is the time. I'm hearing all these people who are just like me who are doing it and are having fun. Maybe I should as well. Come over to our website, otherrecordlabels.com, where I just continue to collect all of these resources. Most of these resources are free that you can download, including our record label toolkit. And so to grab that, all you have to do is to go to otherrecordlabels.com slash toolkit and you can download our record label toolkit that includes tons of resources like templates and checklists and a record label budget and so much more. Go to otherrecordlabels.com slash toolkit. Now back to the interview. Physical media, there's something about, uh, first of all, I love having this type of music on vinyl, transferring it from the car or my headphones into my living room, Um, but it takes a lot more of a commitment from the label standpoint, from the artist standpoint, um, whereas some of the music we make, we can just upload it. We could see if it is accessible. Is it resonating with people? Um, and again, like we mentioned, it's kind of hard to capture 
the the fans who are listening to a thousand of these different artists in a in a you know in a day on on these playlists and so how can we get them to stop and buy that one artist's record so can you what role does physical play for your label right now uh it plays no role at all wow um but that's something uh we really want to crack the code on to be honest yeah um yeah, you know that's that's been a challenge for us. Um, you know, we we do get the occasional Bandcamp sale, um, but as far as physical goes, I mean, you know, to be fair, we haven't tried all that sure, hard. But, sure. Um, one of our bigger projects, it was a big compilation album um, with a bunch of artists. We uh, we did a crowdfunding campaign last year uh, to try to get that out for vinyl. Um, but that was unsuccessful. Mm. Um, didn't re- reach our goal, so uh, we we kind of just uh, set our sights elsewhere. Um, but looking forward, that's still a goal of mine. Yeah, um, that definitely would be uh, you know a signal to me that we're we're doing something right to you know and and connecting with people. Mm. If we could be successful in uh, you know getting pre-orders or whatever uh, for a vinyl. Um, so yeah, I mean the. With our rebrand and and uh, you know kind of reshaping of our vision, um, that ultimately kind of does play into our goal of um, you know not just being a a label that has playlists that people listen to passively. Um, you know we we want to be a place that people come to for good music and you know have supporters of the label. Um, but I think we gotta definitely have a long road ahead there, as I'm sure you know. I I find yeah. I mean, I think first of all, thank you for your transparency because that's really interesting, and I love that you use the term "crack the code." I use that in in business all the time because it's really what it is. We have this dream or we have this idea, but it's not ready yet, uh, and yeah. it's just a matter of of getting the numbers right. But um, it that is like the mo- an incredible challenge. And I don't envy you, and I I wouldn't mm-hmm. know what to do to say we've got hundreds of thousands of listeners but we can't get them we can't you know we can't get them to buy one record um super frustrating and and i i look at your catalog i've listened to a lot of your tracks and the idea of you putting together a winter compilation on vinyl or a summer compilation or however you categorize a compilation is so appealing i'm like give me those records now but I, so it's to me, it's, it's so interesting you say to crack the code because yes, the, the idea is beautiful. It should exist in the world. Surprisingly, we don't have many uh, kind of like genre style compilation records in record stores today. And I think there's room for it. But yeah, I mean, that must be extremely frustrating and daunting to try to capture those passive listeners in t- and, and grow your brand. Yeah, I mean, it, it does kind of feel like, uh, you know, being on one side of a, a really thick window and <laughs> <laughs> seeing all of your, your fans and, uh, you know, they can't see you. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's so true. Um, my last question in this streaming atmosphere mm-hmm or ecosystem. And again, it's such an interesting thing. And I think it's, it's so cool to have you on the show because right now, as we're recording this, it's the Spotify wrapped season. And so there's a lot of online dialogue about Spotify 
and I, I mean, I think, I think primarily they're they're problematic um, as a whole. <clears throat> I think they certainly could pay more. I think they could charge the customers more money. Um, they've done a lot of things for the artists. They were kind of first with Spotify for artists, and so there's a lot of cool things there. I do feel um, that oftentimes I am, I feel like I'm at the same. Uh, given the same treatment as major label artists in the sense that I get a chance to have my tracks next to theirs. So I I am grateful for that compared to how it used to be um, with FM radio. But there's obviously millions of ways that they could improve all mm-hmm. of our lives. Um, and so I everyone is kind of online's critical. I think there's a lot of labels in our community who are outright critical of them because for whatever reason, either their strategy... Um, or their their genre of music, they haven't made any income from Spotify, or their income is just pathetic, or sorry, like not their efforts aren't pathetic, but just what Spotify pays them yeah, is, yeah. is is sad. You know, um, even even if you have a thousand people listening mm-hmm. to your new album, that's incredible. And, and back in the old days, if if you had a thousand people buying your CD, that was inc- that was mind blowing for an indie artist. Now you're not even crossing this threshold to get paid anymore. So that's what I mean by it being pathetic. But um, so my point is, is that there's a lot of people out there who see Spotify as only a bad thing. There are other labels who kind of remain silent during this critique in December because they are making a living. Um, so are you ever scared to like bite the hand that feeds? Like, cause there, there is kind of like, there mm. are people out there who are making a living. I think I, some of my colleagues, I know like artists depends, of course, depends on their label deal and what other revenue streams they have going on. But anybody with a hundred thousand or more monthly listeners is starting to, starting to make a, a little bit of a living. So um, can you talk about, the goods and bads and 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 the awkward position that some artists are in sure i would love nothing more um <laughs> but I, you can't you're under agree <laughs> no i i um i love talking about this more than than anything oh it's, good, uh, good it fills my cup um yeah i guess you know i i i do want to acknowledge that my you know my opinions on spotify um, and streaming in general, as you know, as much as I do try to have a balanced opinion, they are biased mm-hmm. um, by the fact that you know I do make my living from Spotify, right? Um, and so there is definitely that you know level of privilege and and luck that that comes with my opinion. Um, <clears throat> I guess yeah, I'll, I'll start with the you know the things that I am critical about. Um, I, I like what you said. I mean, I, I you said you know. Spotify needs to pay more um, and charge, uh, you know, uh, users Brands, more, yeah. and that that part I think is is missing from uh, almost all of the dialogue that I've ever seen. You know, they uh, people will complain. You know, Spotify doesn't pay enough, um, and I agree. You know, I I think as artists we should get paid more mm-hmm. um, for the value that we're bringing, um, but you know. It's 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 really that people don't want to pay more. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and maybe they do. I mean, I would be willing to pay more. Um, but to you know, the the same people that I have those conversations with, you know, they're 
you know, on family plans for mm. the discount, right? Yeah. Yeah. And every person that's on a family discount, myself included, um, you know, uh, instead of being on a, you know, the the premium ten dollars a month plan, you know, that that is less money in artists' pockets. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if we are going to address uh, Spotify paying more, we do need to address, you know, the fact that like. You know, we as fans, and again, myself included, like we need to pay more for music. For sure. Um, and so, yeah, I guess the, th yeah, the, the thing I would say Spotify needs to, you know, do a better job of is, uh, you know, focus less time telling, you know, people how they can, you know, get all this music for not very much money and, and kind of take the opposite approach and say, you know, uh, you know, this is how you can support artists, you know, and, and mm -hmm. you know, whether that be different, um, different tiers, I know that, you know, Tidal is doing something like that. Um, but uh, anyways, I'm rambling about no, that. No, but point. just to, just to interject and I'll let you continue. But basically mm -hmm. I love that Spotify needs to increase that pool. We're, we're hearing more about this pool and most yeah. of that <clears throat> money in the pool goes to shareholders and goes to the staff. Um, but if the kind of the you know all tide all tides raise all boats, um, yeah, yeah. but like <clears throat> they're talking about you know cutting off the thousand below streams in, in order to increase that pool that they use to pay the artists with, and so whatever can inject more money, even <clears throat> if there is a tier on Spotify that's fifteen dollars and it's basically just a way to pay artists more. Um, yeah. Okay. Continue. Yeah, um, yeah. There's there's a lot of things that uh, I am critical of Spotify about, and and I have a tough time deciding, um, you know, if I'm okay with it or not. Mm -hmm. For example, um, if you look at, uh, and I hope no one at Spotify is watching this. I, I doubt because it because they'll be mad <laughs> at me for bringing this up. But <clears throat> um, you know, if if you look at pretty much any of the mood-based playlists, kind of the passive listening playlists that are editorial mm. Spotify playlists, mm -hmm. um, and you look into the artists that are on those playlists. So take Peaceful Piano, for example. Yeah, um, It's got over 7 million monthly, uh, yeah. 7 million fans. 99% um, of the artists on that playlist are fake. They're no. not, yeah, they're not real. Um, I don't, you know, I don't have proof for this, uh, but I think it's the only <laughs> logical conclusion. T take a look uh, after sure, this. Yeah, um, you'll notice that ninety-nine percent of the artists don't have a profile picture, don't have a bio, don't have a you know Instagram, and you got to think, okay, what's the probability that you know all of these artists with you know two million monthly listeners um, have decided ah, I'm not going to take this uh, this whole Spotify thing very seriously? I'll just get my you know my hundred thousand dollars a year from this playlist yeah. and uh, no, just for sure. call it there. Um, and so what I suspect and many other people suspect is that Spotify has, um, you know, paid a ghostwriter to yeah. effectively write a bunch of music and not just in piano. Um, but, uh, and then, uh, you know, populate their, their big playlists with that. And essentially, you know, every stream that happens on one of those artists would be, uh, you know, a royalty they don't have to pay out from the pot. So essentially a royalty they pay to themselves. That's right. Um, <clears throat> and I totally uh, believe that because, I mean, a, the business, a business's job is to 
spend less money and make yeah. more money. And so when you were, if you were to look at peaceful piano and, and I'm guilty, I, I've listened to that before. So now you make me feel <laughs> bad, but um, Sorry. <laughs> I, I um, if you look at that list and you're looking at 7 million listeners and you look at the amount of millions of plays that that would be generating, that's an expensive playlist. I mean, that's the, yes. you know, it's the same thing as, um, uh, as a, a, cruise ship having a leak it's like you know if you're spotify you want to make that playlist go away <laughs> because yeah. it's costing you especially if it's a sleep playlist like we talked about at the top of this episode people are listening to this so passively they're unconscious and you know mm. it's um it's costing them millions of dollars a month maybe even a day in royalties so um it i i know that that's been kind of like a a conspiracy going around and everyone's tried to deny it but it's kind of like, you know, it's pretty obvious. And even if you just look at it from an economic standpoint, Spotify yeah. can't ha can't be paying those royalties to people passively listening to music like that. It just doesn't yeah. make sense. So it, it would totally make sense to hire someone like you and say, "Here's a thousand bucks. Give me ten songs. I owe I, I own them forever." Yeah, yeah, and and. and the reason I say I'm not sure exactly how I feel about it, I mean, I know it's um, it's bordering bordering on unethical for sure. Mm. Um, but like you said, you know, like a, a business's job is to minimize expenses um, and ultimately be profitable. And I haven't looked at Spotify's numbers in in a while, but I know that you know historically they have been not profitable. Mm. Um, and so I do look at something like that and and wonder, okay, is this maybe a necessary evil that needs to happen for them to be able to make enough money to continue to exist so that I can continue to you know uh, earn my living yeah. from Spotify? Yeah. Um, but still, you know, evidence of a broken system that needs fixing. Yeah. Because um, ultimately, you know, if if that's what they have to resort to, then um, you know there there has to be a better way. Absolutely. Just going back to the idea of um, making fans pay more money. The biggest yeah. issue with this whole business model, and and it's tempting to compare it to um, <laughs> Disney Plus and Netflix and Hulu and all of the other ones. In those cases, they all have exclusive content. They probably don't share any content. HBO has their stuff. Disney right. has their stuff. So if you want Star Wars, you go to Disney. If you want Sopranos, you go to HBO. So whatever HBO wants to charge, whatever Disney wants to charge, it doesn't matter. It's just how how much do you value that content? Where in in this space, Title, Apple Music, Spotify, they all have the exact same catalog. There was a minute where where Kanye Kanye yeah. West or, or Beyonce stuff were uh, different stuff, but they got rid of that really quickly. So if Spotify were to say we're now going to charge fourteen ninety nine. Like Netflix has done in our lifetime, has gone from six dollars to twenty six dollars. Who knows? But um, Spotify couldn't do that because people would yeah. say, "Oh, well, we'll just go to Apple Music or we'll go to YouTube." You know, there's always another cheaper. And and in, and the weirdest thing is in these cases, with the cases of like Apple or YouTube, they're loss leaders. These streaming memberships. So. Yeah. Um, anyway, I just wanted to kind of highlight that that's a real predicament and it, it may need somebody at the government level to come in. Um, it, it's, there is no, there's no power amongst indies, even though we try 
and you know maybe the majors maybe the majors could but it, i don't know yeah um no that's a good point i hadn't thought of that uh you know off the top of my head i i do feel that part of the solution would be the messaging um mm-hmm. you know when when netflix uh you know i was among the people who was you know not stoked to be paying more but um you know when i'm watching netflix i'm never thinking about the you know the indie documentary mm-hmm. uh makers that are on there that you know i'm supporting mm-hmm. when i watch one of their films sure. um and i should be and you know i i think that's partially on netflix for you know not highlighting how their business works um and again going back to my point earlier about kind of changing the messaging that spotify and the other dsps are putting out there is like I, you know if they put a bigger emphasis on saying like listen like you know this is how these artists actually make money so you know you paying more um you know this is you know going to support them more um but uh, yeah that's I- I love that, that messaging <laughs> thing. I'm just playing the devil's advocate here, but like the problem then becomes what percentage of Spotify users or the majority of Spotify users, how, what percentage of them are listening to us versus Taylor and Drake and the people who yeah. don't need our charity? So I That's think I, I wonder if, you know, that message would fall on the 80% of deaf ears for 80% of the subscribers who say, well, I only listen to the, the the charts, the top hits. I don't. I'm going to pay Walmart prices for that. Yeah, it's a it's a terrible system. It's terrible. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, let's let me. This is a good segue to my final question in this space, and that is, what happens if it all goes away? And we we touched on that a little bit with this um, this thick glass window. Um, I mean, what? I'm sure some things you want to kind of keep private, but how, you know, if Spotify were to be shut down or go bankrupt tomorrow, which is not absurd at all, um, a lot of us would lose a a monthly revenue stream that we've been kind of used to for the past uh, eight to 10 years. So what, um, what happens then? And, and do you, do you, do you lie awake thinking about that some nights? Most nights. <laughs> Most nights. Uh, you know, it is uh, a vulnerable position to be in to have <coughs> the viability of your business completely reliant on the viability of another business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we do have revenue sources from other DSPs, um, but it's predominantly Spotify. Yeah. Um, and outside of DSPs, you know, we don't, as a label, we don't have any revenue streams. Um, so yeah, I mean, the reality for me would be if Spotify went belly up tomorrow, um, I would be looking for a, a different job. Yeah. Um, so I definitely <laughs> really hope that doesn't happen. Um, you know, that said, I, I think, uh, I mean, I, I think it is likely, you know, in the next 10, 20 years that something is going to shift and, yeah. you, know, yeah. you know, as a label, we'll have to adapt. Um, but I'm feeling hopeful that, uh, you know, on this quest to crack the code on how can we you know, really build a, a true fan base, um, I'm feeling hopeful that we will be able to do that. And, you know, if 
if Spotify went belly up, we would, you know, be able to direct our fans to, you know, where they can support us. Um, so, I mean, that ultimately is my goal moving forward is to um, have that plan B. <clears throat> well, here's a suggestion. Back in the 80s and 90s, Christians were scared that Satanists were putting um, subliminal messages in rock and roll. And so is there any way, I mean, you, you guys do this experimental music. It wouldn't be too hard to hide in some sort of like call to action in your music that you put on, on Spotify to, to come visit you and follow you on Bandcamp. That's a really good idea. Okay. That's honestly a really good idea. Take the challenge. <laughs> I, I, yeah. Um, yeah. The only time I've seen something close to that is, and Juna Deep, um, they'll every once in a while like have a little message in in one of the versions of their song, uh, but it's you know not usually a call to action. Um, <laughs> Fans would but, kill you if if in the middle of the soft piano <laughs> while they're trying to sleep, yeah. or 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 while they're trying to do something else, you're like hop yeah. over to Juda yeah. and <laughs> yeah. Okay, tell me a little bit about this um, twofold. Tell me about the history of the label, um, and we've we've talked about Little Symphony and we've talked about Anjou. So um, I want to hear a little bit about the rebrand. But let's go back to the beginning with the history of the label, how things got started. Because if I'm not mistaken, there's another. There was a, a recording, field recording component. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, that is correct. Um, so I'm going to bring us back even a little bit before that. Um, so. This all, you know, my my interest in Spotify and playlists and streaming all started back in like 2016, 2017. Uh, my my band from back out west when I was living in Alberta, Evergreen, we recorded an EP, um, and the you know the the four of us were all uh, we all met in in uh, engineering school, so we're all you know into spreadsheets and. Uh, <laughs> Um, kind of analytics and stuff, and so we, you know, we wanted to try to figure out how we could again to use the the term "crack the code" on um, algorithmic playlists, mm. specifically on Spotify. And so we, uh, when we released our EP, we had this massive spreadsheet of like three thousand uh, small time curators that we found across Spotify and you know we had tracked those people down on on Instagram and Facebook and um, this is something that you know you see a lot now but at the time uh, even though it was only uh, six years ago um, to my knowledge not too many people were doing this sure yeah um, so we reached out to these uh, these curators and I'm talking people with plays that had like 10 followers not not oh, hundred thousand um, because our our theory was okay if we can you know get our music on enough playlists, um, maybe that will signal something uh, in you know Spotify's algorithm. You know, reach some kind of threshold, um, and we had a, a lot of um, success there. Uh, you know, people were graciously receiving our unsolicited um, messages and, and saying, "Yeah, like you know, I'd love to put your music on our playlist." And uh, one thing led to another, and uh, that you know, I, I assume it was that that. Triggered uh, a pretty big awakening of Discover uh, Discover Weekly for mm. us, and so we woke up one day and um, had over ten thousand streams. Wow! The the day before, um, all from Discover Weekly, um, and so we kind of took that as a sign that okay, we're we're doing something right. 
Um, and so, yeah, that, I mean, that was that was a while ago, and and our our catalog with that band is is still um, growing in in listeners to this day, wow. primarily through algorithmic streams. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, at that point, we thought, okay, there's there is potential to make a living on Spotify uh, in a way that we hadn't really contemplated before. Uh, and then, so Bryson and, and Pete, two of the uh, members of that band, they they formed Little Symphony, um, and their goal was to essentially do that, but focus more on their own playlists. Um, and then I joined uh, about a year into that endeavor, and we just started, um, you know, making ambient music with field recordings. And um, one of our goals there has been to kind of legitimize the that genre of music. Um, kind of the ambient nature music realm, for me, has always been a little bit faux pas mm-hmm. in the sense that it's kind of like, it's what I expect to see in a gas station in the late 90s, you know, a CD <laughs> with like... Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, really tacky font and and yeah. poor quality, um, and so you know we've we've set out to um, try to change that. And just out um, of curiosity, were they straight up field recordings, or was their music a bed of music? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's all music okay. uh, that we we also use field recordings. Okay, with. okay. Um, and uh, yeah, so we've um, we've. Had an emphasis on you know targeting uh, different locations around the world. So anytime one of us or one of our friends are going traveling, we'll we'll um, head out with uh, a Zoom recorder and and get field recordings and and then we'll use that to kind of inspire ourselves to make music around that. Um, and so our you know our strategy around that has been making our own playlists and promoting those and. Um, kind of letting that be the driver of our listeners, um, and then a couple of years into that. Can I that, just interject? Sorry, David. I was just curious. Uh, the little symphony stuff. You're making your own playlists. Are you? Is is little symphony an artist? Is are you releasing those music? Is is it like a? It's like a band a little bit, like a label, a yep. playlist curated all in one. Exactly. Cool. Yep. Okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Um. And so, at, you know, at a certain point, we thought, well, okay, you know, this is this is really fun, but I, you know, I wonder if we can kind of do this on a on a bigger scale and be able to support, um, uh, you know, a bunch of artists doing mm. this. Um, and at this point, you know, I had never thought about, you know, what a label does or who would run a label. And we started working with a couple of artists, um, you know, releasing music and promoting it, and then. At a certain point, kind of realized, oh, like I think this is what a a label does, yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, kind of just pulled the trigger uh, on on making that a, f- a full time thing. So I, at the time, uh, was doing a PhD in engineering and and uh, hated it <laughs> so much. <laughs> and I kind of this was kind of my out. I was like, you know, this is something I'm passionate about. So yeah. Um, uh, yeah, along with, uh, two of my friends, uh, Brandon and Andrew, we, uh, we started up this label and kind of, uh, pulled away from, from Little Symphony. And so at the time that was, uh, Little Symphony Records, 
Um, and so we operated for you know the last three years and um, kind of did all the things that you know we've talked about on this call. And um, but more recently, you know, we've we've decided okay, we want to we want to move away from just being a neoclassical label and you know just you know releasing music that's mostly in the passive sphere. And so we uh, you know we thought well, okay, I think a, a rebrand is needed here because. Um, you know, the words Little Symphony Records for me kind of pigeonhole us into uh, someone expecting something in particular. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and kind of the motto of, of our label moving forward is the idea of curiosity mm. um, and taking a more genre fluid approach. Um, and so the word Anjou um, kind of checks those boxes for us and and so for us, it um, you know it, it repre- represents a, a change um, mm. that we want to make. Yeah, I love it. It looks really cool, anyway. And you're right. I mean, Little Symphony is great. It's a great name. It's but it's literal. You you really can yeah. kind of get a sense of, especially when you look at your website, mm-hmm. you get a sense of what's happening there. So the rebrand, just to touch real quick, because I don't think we've really talked to many labels who've done rebrands. Um, it's a big undertaking and it's risky, especially from a label like you who have established yourselves, you know, not just in the community, um, but even just on Google, like when I search Little Symphony, it comes up, uh, everything I need comes up. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah. you know, to abandon that or to try to reinvent that with a new brand, that's kind of daunting and, and almost oftentimes it would be ill-advised. Yeah, I, I mean, even even now, I mean, it's been it's been just under a month since we uh, officially did the rebrand. Even now, I, I I think about like you know when you know when I look back forty years from now, am I gonna look back and be like that was the dumbest thing I've yeah. I've ever done? And you know, is that going to be included as like a case study at some local <laughs> university here as the you know yeah. the dumbest thing that you can do? We'll see. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't even I wouldn't say I'm nervous about it though. Yeah. Um, the for me the the pros totally outweigh yeah. that fear. And one of the biggest things, honestly, is um, you know I'm I'm so passionate about this label and I'm so passionate about Little Symphony. Um, and the two things uh, historically have just gotten so confused with one another. Um, and so we've had a lot of people thinking that the label, uh, you know, is exclusively releasing, uh, you know, nature ambient yeah. music. And we're yeah. like, actually, we don't do that at all. That's uh, that's Little Symphony. Um, and so, you know, even if we do kind of lose a little bit of traction from this, um, it's been really nice to have this line in the sand yeah. where I can, you know, now without doubt, you know, say the two things and have people know what I'm talking about. That's genius. And because I did confuse the two of them. So now was Little Symphony ever on the record label Little Symphony? Did you release their music at all? Or or is there a future? No. No. Okay. Uh I, I mean like a little bit. Um uh kind of early days we were kind of slapping the the name Little Symphony onto some of the releases, yeah. um, just for kind of algorithmic reasons. Okay, um, but that was early days. Now it's uh, kind of we've kept that separate. Yeah. yeah, 
Um, are there labels that you draw inspiration from in this space? Sorry, my cat's attacking me at the moment. That's okay. That's all right. Yes, definitely. Um, you don't have um, to name any names. If you... Yeah, no, I'd, I'd love to. I mean, uh, not necessarily in the or anywhere, uh, classical maybe, yeah. space, but in uh, Junodeep, that's one of my favorite labels. Okay. I, uh, I love what they do. I love um, the music that they put out. Um, I'd say in the neoclassical space, if there was one label that I respect the most, it would be Erased Tapes. Mm, yeah, um, same. They've put out, I mean, they, like if you look at their roster, it's just absolutely insane. And mm. they have wonderful branding and... Mm -hmm, yeah. Um, yeah, I love all the things that they've done. Except the they past. won't answer my emails. But go on. <laughs> Sorry to hear that. Um, yeah, yeah, I know. I completely agree. And and I I think um, and and it's what I love about your rebrand is um, there is a marriage of of um, graphic design with this music. I personally, yeah. I you know, I feel it. And I think maybe just having this epiphany now then maybe it's a response to the way that this music was distributed in the 90s, like you mentioned, in truck stops with horrible fonts and stock photography. And so yeah. to now say, you know, this is a piece of art. I was listening to somebody recently um, who just yesterday, uh, Jay Forrester, and, um, and I was, the artwork is like, a sculpture and i'm like this music is like a sculpture and it and it to me so i don't know i maybe i'm just the one who pays attention to that but i do feel like there is a real importance on the visual as well even if it's just yeah. digital yeah that's something you guys talk about too on your site yeah i mean we uh definitely the, the visual side comes uh into play for us as well like it's um, it's all part of the aesthetic mm -hmm. of the label. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, uh, one of my partners on the label, Andrea, she she does all of our artwork in house. Nice. Um, and so that keeps things, you know, really nice and and well branded and cohesive with uh, with the label. Um, but has also done a really good job of um, kind of catering to artists' individual styles. Um, so that's been a, a really fun challenge. Um, and I don't know sure. if you've encountered this, but um, trying to stay true to your own brand while also, um, you know, making sure that artists are feeling like you know their brand is being incorporated into that release. Yeah, man, great point. Um, uh, that's a real. That's like the toughest thing, and and probably where I I butted heads with artists the most. And and of course they're always wrong, and and I was always right. So that 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 created a problem. Um, yeah. But I, uh, I mean, the labels that I I love and admire are the ones that really stick to their format. And and I've yeah. often thought if I were to do another label, um, you know, genre specific, maybe even Canadian specific, um, that I would right from the get go, I would kind of do a style guide, like the way that you know brands yeah. have style guides, and say, listen. We're doing, you know, white vinyl sleeves with like a black and white Obi strip. And it's, this is the format. So there is no room. You know, I wouldn't allow them room because the uniformity is so important to me. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I even look when, you, if you go to, 
um, like our our fellow Canadians in in this space, Moderna. If you go to their website, oh, yeah. when something stands out, you know, and I talk to them about this too. If something is different than the rest, it's just weird, especially yeah. on Bandcamp. You know, so um, yeah, that's a huge issue for me as a music fan, as a label owner, and, and honestly, it's one of the reasons I I ha- had to pull back from the label. Of course, aside from doing this, but I just. I struggled with the fact that the I wanted the label to be my artistic expression. Maybe you right. have an opinion on this, but the label as a whole, everything the label does was a um, was my art my creativity, my artistic expression. Yeah. And so the the production choices that we would do in the studio with the music or the artwork choices of the artist, if it conflicted with my overall vision for the label, I didn't know what to do. And and I I found that to be the biggest challenge. I yeah I couldn't agree uh, more. I mean I I kind of like to think of myself as uh, you know almost like a curator. Yeah, of course um, you are. Yeah, you know at, at a you know and and I see it you know no different than if I were curating an exhibit mm-hmm. of visual art. Hundred um, percent. You know I I do want it to be cohesive and I I want it to be. A reflection of my creativity as well, um, and so yeah, definitely we've had some challenging moments where um, what the artist wants does not line up with what we want as a label, and um, I think more often than not we have kind of gone with the the path of least resistance and said, <laughs> okay, you know, we'll good we'll, for you, we'll, we'll do yeah. we'll do this, um, but. You know, a, l- a little part of me kind of dies inside when yeah. that happens, because I find myself thinking, like, why, like, why am I doing this? Um, and I mean, We're, part of the answer is, you know, we we want to support artists, and that is my passion. But sorry, what were you going to say? No, man, I was just going to say we're cut from the same cloth because I, when you say that, I totally get it, and and I have tried to tell an artist, if you let if you let me do this presentation if we present it this way i will be a better advocate for this album yeah and and the part of me that when you say the part of you that dies inside like if we do not put this together in the way that i totally vision it envision it i I just yeah i just don't think i'll be able to sell it with all of my heart and lay myself out on the line and and email my contacts and say please this is the best album we've ever done please pay attention to it um, I don't know if I'm wrong. I probably am wrong, but <laughs> it's just where, you know, it's, yeah, that's so tough. I, I think your idea about the style guide is, is really good. And that's something we intend on doing as well. And something I have been learning more and more and mostly through mistakes is the, the role of just being explicit upfront and setting expectations. Yeah. And it just solves pretty much every issue yep. that uh you know we have encountered um and so yeah moving forward that's definitely going to be what we're going to be doing um you know like when we uh we're working on a project right now um it's uh yeah it's, it's a really fun project and and this one in particular is is a very much kind of a reflection of um the direction that i artistically Great. would like to take the, the label um and so this it's a compilation album that uh, will involve 40 artists. Wow. 
And um, so, as you can imagine, you know, with with an album uh, that has so many <laughs> artists, um, you know, people can potentially be at odds in in terms of opinions. And and so we were just super upfront at the very beginning, where we're like, you know, if you want to be a part of this, like this is um, this is what the visual aesthetic is going to be. This is what um, good for you. This is when things are going to be released. Um, and that you know, there there was no. There was no pushback at all. Everyone was just so excited to be part of the project, and and I think um, knowing where the lines in the sand are, um, I think was was peaceful for artists to see. Well, they can't argue with it because it shows that you've put thought into this, and it shows that you are in you have a vision, and that you're passionate about this vision. And any artist would understand that because they have their yeah. same thing, and so. I completely agree, and any sort of conflict I ever experienced over the years, either really deep conflict or um, even just like passive, like little minor, minor, minor disagreements have always come from not being preemptive and, and their expectations and my expectations riding alongside each other until it's too late. And then we look at each other and like, oh, you thought we were doing this, I thought we were doing this. Um, and then, and then having to resolve that one of us having to give in. So when, when you're, when you set the expectations right at the beginning, right at the coffee shop, when you're meeting them for the very first time, yeah. um, nothing can come from it because the worst, the absolute worst that can happen is they can leave that meeting and go, you know what? I, I think I'm going to just release on my own and yeah. everybody's happy. Yeah. That, um, that's crazy. Yeah. I, I mean, on, on kind of on that note. Un, unrelated, or not unrelated, uh, semi-related. Um, I'd I'd like to kind of ask your thoughts on um, what direction contracts should be going moving forward. Mm. I'll tell you a little bit about uh, the the agreements that we have with our artists, and this is kind of uh, you know one of my uh, one of my pulpit uh, things <laughs> that sure. that I you know I I, I like to. And, and want to see change in, um, and that's better agreements for artists, because um, quite frankly, from our perspective at least, we don't we don't need to have such restrictive yeah uh, agreements with artists, um, and so all of our agreements are not only non-exclusive with the artists themselves, but um, they're also. Uh, non-exclusive with the releases, the with the actual masters. Wow. Um, and so, kind of our our philosophy there is, <clears throat> you know, if we're not if we're not living up to what we're saying, we're going to live up to. Then, um, you know, we think that artists should be able to go elsewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even, uh, you know, even with that, you know, with that project. So, if someone released a single with us and. They're like, mm, you know what? I, I wasn't super stoked about yeah. how that went. I would like to have a second chance with this and release that uh, that song on an album that I would like to release independently or with, you know, Moderna sure. Records. Sure. Um, and we're, you know, totally happy to have that happen. Um, yeah. Uh, sorry, I realize you're the interviewer, but uh, no, I'm curious that's okay. uh, what no. your thoughts are on on that model. I, you know, that's the model that I had going back 13 years ago with my label that was not in writing. It was right. just this agreement that we had because I would never want to hold someone down who didn't want to be there. 
And yeah. it would obviously go against everything that I believe in if I, if a major label came along or a medium-sized label came along and said, we want to work with this artist. And I said, no, they're mine. Um, if, if that was truly the best thing for them to go with them, like I would never want to get in the way of that. So I always, and I mean, I treated it like a real relationship or like a marriage. I mean, even a marriage has a contract, but yeah. like nobody should stick around if they're not happy. So I, I think, I think any relationship, um, and, and I also, th I love it because it puts the onus on you to do a good yeah. job and to work yeah. hard. And we have horror stories where labels just own an artist and they don't have to work for that artist or the, that release. The only thing that, I mean, there, it sounds a little confusing when you say non-exclusive for the masters, because, um, I would assume there's something in there that wouldn't allow them to upload it to Spotify themselves at the same time as you? Yeah, I mean, there's uh, definitely some administrative barriers there. But yeah, like the, 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 our contract uh, it is worded such that like, you know, you can't upload the just the exact same release. Like, yeah. you know, okay. uh, if we release a single, you can't also release that same single. Um, so you kind of you kind of own that barcode and that artwork and the ISRC, but they own the master wave. Uh, the the barcode and the and the artwork, yeah, but they uh, would kind of keep the the ISRC, sure. so they could use that ISRC again. <laughs> but they but you you wouldn't really want them to do like a simultaneous release, right? Yeah, not not the exact same thing. But I yeah. mean, if they if they wanted to release the album uh, an album, uh, which would you know be a different UPC, but have that same master and ISRC on that album. Um, that's and I totally think that's fine. great, and I think that's great, and I mean they would be they would be dumb if they did that a week after they came out with a single. Yes. So yes. to me, it's like I wouldn't want to work with an artist who's not understanding, you know, doing right by your releases. And so yeah, yeah if 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 an artist came along and said I'm going to release this at the same time, we'll see who does better. <laughs> you know, yeah. like obviously you're not working with those people, and they want it's not good for their career. So. Um, and do you have any sort of time horizons on your contracts at all? Yeah, uh, we do have a, a three-year period sure. um, on our contracts. Yeah. You know, I, I talked about this, I think, somewhere on the show, and, or maybe it was just in <clears> private, <throat> but time horizons are very scary for artists. And maybe they're scary for everyone. Um, and I, I, or, or I, should, I should say, you know, the, the terms, the, the length of time of a contract, um, or <laughs> especially when there's, exclusivity involved and I've had um, a five-year physical contract with someone um, and I was scared to death to sign it and for the first year I was just really terrified and I think it's ending this year this coming year and it's been nothing but incredible for me it's been the best yeah. uh, I mean <laughs> like I said this on the show it, it's it's um, been better for me than the person who made me sign the contract. So hmm. um, I, you know, I look back at that and go, that was a great contract. There was another contract that was, uh, you know, a company like yours that could guarantee me or could most likely guarantee me putting me into this like streaming system where a track or an album would earn like a ton in streams, but it came with a 15 year contract and right. I couldn't do it. I was just like, I can't do that. And so I think that the, the time horizons are scary for artists 
because maybe just because of um, the world we're living in, people are yeah. nervous in that way. And and a creative, it's like I don't know where I'm going to be in 15 years. I don't know what kind of yeah. music I'm going to be making. Um, so I I love what you're doing. I really love what you're doing, and I think. I've always thought to myself, it, you're going to be taken advantage it, with that con with that contract in place. Somebody along the line is going to take advantage of of you and how friendly and generous you are, and they're going to take some streams from your system, and then they're going to go on their own, and they will benefit from the algorithmic playlist under their name and under their ISRCs yeah. that you've given them. But honestly, I've always thought in in this space and in any business space and in life, I would rather be the one who's screwed than the one who's doing the screwing. Because it, it means that you've built something that's worth screwing over. <laughs> so, the, yeah, yeah I, I, I love that. I would say, I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but I, I like that those type of contracts. Even if I had a contract with a 15-year horizon, I would... Love that I would hope I could go to that company and say, listen, something big has happened and I'd like out of this contract. And I would yeah. hope um, that they would say, okay, you know. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, we're all, we're all people, we're all human yeah. beings and yeah. um, that, you know, that humanity has to come first. Um, speaking of lawyers, you know, when, when we wrote up this contract, we, you know, we said to our lawyer, help us write a contract that if you were reviewing this from the artist's perspective, you would look at this and say, I don't, I don't think anything should change. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. like, don't write this from our perspective. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah. And so that's, that's what he did. And, and uh, even to really go a step further it. and say, to write this where they think that there's a catch, where they think yeah. this is too good to be true. <laughs> we have received that response yeah. before. Yeah. Um, definitely have yeah. had some artists be like, what's the, what's the catch here? Yeah, I did a little, yeah. little Japanese contract this year and I looked at it and um, I was just being very, very skeptical. And I was like, there's gotta be something hidden in here. And then I'm like, oh, that seems too kind. Oh, that seems too kind. And, and uh, sure enough, it was, it was fine, but yeah. but it's good. Yeah, that's good. That's great. Um, yeah. Listen, we got I, we got to run, but I I love I love your label. I love what you're doing. I, I more than that, I love your mindset and where you're Thank going you. with this. And you know, I speak to people like you three or four times a day, and the mindset is the most important thing. You know, the 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 clear head, the clarity on where you're going to go. And the decisions you're going to make, and and I see some I see some struggles, you know, with your business model of that that big one one way glass yeah. window, and but I think you're the person to figure it out, and I'm kind of excited to see how you do figure it out because a lot of us are in that position, and there's a solution, there's a code, just hasn't been cracked. Thank you, I appreciate that, and I'm I'm pretty confident that the the solution lies somewhere in. A lot of the content that you've put out, um, I've kind of got. I've got a list of videos that I, of yours that I want to watch specifically around uh, email lists and and that kind of marketing. Because mm, that's true. something we've we've just decided to start doing three years in. Um, and so, Erase yeah, Tapes thank, does that very well too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank yeah, so you. So thank you for all the all the great content. Uh, that's awesome. Thanks so much. You can follow Anjou on Instagram at instagram.com slash Anjou Music. That's E-N-J-O-U Music. 
You can also check out the record label formerly known as littlesymphonyrecords.com. So make sure you check out their music, um, subscribe to one of their playlists, listen to their releases, just follow along with what they're doing because they're very smart and they're doing things really well. And uh, they're a label that I really look up to. So I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. If you need resources for yourself for starting your own record label, or maybe you want to dabble with streaming or marketing, getting a little bit better at streaming, you can go to otherrecordlabels.com slash streaming, where we have our um, marketing and playlisting uh, resources there at otherrecordlabels.com slash streaming. And of course, our entire website, otherrecordlabels.com is full of resources for indie record labels. And another shout out to this week's sponsor, Hellbender Vinyl. Uh, if you want to press vinyl records, if you want to quote, if you want to dabble with this idea, you've maybe never done physical units before, uh, then reach out to these guys, hellbendervinyl.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>